Hello, and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Each week, we choose an interesting new book on some area of sports, and we interview the author. This week's guest on the podcast is Paul Dixon. We are discussing his new biography, Bill Veck, Baseball's Greatest Maverick, published in 2012 by Walker & Company. I'll be honest in acknowledging that, out of the hundreds of baseball books published each year, most fans' first choice probably wouldn't be a biography of a former team owner. But it would be a mistake to pass by Paul Dixon's biography of Bill Veck. First of all, this is a colorful and entertaining book, because Veck himself was a colorful and entertaining character. Moreover, Vec was a person of principle and goodwill, who looked out for the interests of his fans and his players. While reading the book, I found myself rooting for Vec in his constant struggle against the baseball establishment. Secondly, this is also an illuminating book. Vec was present at some of the key moments that shaped the modern game. He planted the ivy along the outfield wall at Wrigley Field in 1936. He signed Satchel Paige to a major league contract in 1948. And he testified against baseball's owners in the historic Kurt Flood trial of 1970. If you have an interest in baseball history, you'll find Bill Veck to be an indispensable figure. Of course, Veck told his own story in a memoir regarded as one of the classics of baseball writing. But Paul Dixon is more than capable of taking up the task of writing Veck's life. Paul himself is a longtime writer on baseball history and culture, whose baseball dictionary is an essential reference for the game. His biography is thoroughly researched, and it conveys all the charisma of his subject. We had a fun time talking about the book, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. My guest this week on New Books and Sports is Paul Dixon. Paul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks a lot. So two words that would apply to your career as a writer. You've been writing books now for for 40 years, and, and two words that would apply are prolific and encyclopedic. You have written, what, more than 50 books, is that correct? Uh, this will be my 64th. Holy cow. Okay. so Yeah, you're allowed to say holy cow on the radio. <laughs> and, and, and the topics range from American politics, history, cultural fads. Uh, you've written a number of books on the space program. You've even written a book on military food. But, but two pop- topics that are consistent throughout your years of writing have been baseball and language. In fact, you've written several books on the language of baseball. So I'll ask you to start. How did these two specific interests uh, develop? Um, it's it's difficult to say. I think the baseball thing, I had a rabid baseball fan as a kid, and then my kids uh, came back to, uh, when when my two boys were born, they re- became very, very interested in baseball all of a sudden. And one of the first games I took my older son to was at the old Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, and this was almost 30 years ago, and um, he uh, a little over 30 years ago actually. And he he was he kept saying during the game, he said, well, "Dad, why do they call this thing? Why do they call him a shortstop? And why is it a dugout? And what you know what 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 was that from?" And he was going on and on and on about these questions. And umpire, why isn't he a referee? What what is this umpire word all about? 
And so I said, you know, Andrew, I said, we'll go home and we'll look up the, these, uh, we'll go to the library on Monday and we'll pick up a big fat book, which will have all the terms of baseball in them. And I go to the library on Monday, and in fact, there was no big fat book. So that got me started. And uh, that first baseball dictionary came out in 1967, but it got me really back into baseball. And then I realized that I'm a you know, freelance writer living on earned income, you know, income coming in and royalties that it was a topic that had a, a huge following. Baseball has a, there, there are certain topics, as you know, that have inordinately high mm-hmm. readership. I mean, bird, you know, birders and uh, fly fishermen and other people. There are other groups of people. That, Abraham but, Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> yeah. Somebody once said the best uh, t- uh, title for a book was Lincoln's Doctor's Dog. <laughs> Then, then later it became the Kennedy Sex Diet. That was they changed everyone. Listen, they came up with the perfect title. But so, it, and it was just a natural thing. I mean, I and I think the language thing. I've always had that. I mean, it's just something that I just from the time as a little kid, I le- I memorized words and I looked up obscure words and I collected words. It was funny. I, I you know, I'd hear something. I, I'd read something in the paper about hobo slang or cowboy slang. And I'd pick that up, you know, and I'd be fascinated by the fact that there were all these different sort of sub-dialects that weren't really, they weren't separate languages, but they were sort of, of different ways of speaking. I, and the other thing I, I love to write about is, is space. So I, if I went back to visit myself now at 72, I went back to visit myself as, a, as an 18-year-old and said, hey, you don't have to work. You can spend all your time writing about baseball, writing about space, writing about American history, playing around with language, I would have said, you're nuts, you can't do that. You've got to go to law school. You've got to cut hair or something, you know, something useful. So what led you to this book then on, on Bill Vec? Well, again, I, I was, one of the things you, you know, I really like as a writer is I, I love to do something I haven't done before. And it dawned on me at one point that I'd never really done a biography. I'd always thought about it. I approached a couple of people, and I thought about doing biography. And I realized it's a, it's a different art form than doing, say, a, a narrative like my Sputnik book or my book on the Bonus Army. But that it's a different, it's a different animal altogether. And I thought it would be really interesting to find somebody fascinating enough to do a biography of. But I needed some certain elements that I really wanted. I wanted to talk about... The social issues of the 20th century. I wanted to talk about race. I, back of my mind, I wanted to talk about uh, World War II and the, the people that came out of that war because all my uncles and everybody else had. And um, I start, first started playing with Satchel Page, and then a guy named Larry Ty came along, and I called. Mm-hmm. And then I, and then I immediately, I just a friend of mine actually and I were talking about who would you, who would you most like to do a biography of, and this guy's not a doesn't a biographer, but he said, uh, "I don't think I don't think anyone's done a, a, a re, you know really decent biography of Bill Vex." So I was off and running, and I, he was perfect for me because he's he was the, the, I could get the war in and, and legitimately so mm-hmm. I could get I could get race was a major piece of the puzzle of, 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 his, of his lifetime, but also the the the, the 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 last the end of the 20th century, the last half of the 20th century, and how ownership changed and how the free agency changed and all these things which Vec had been a participant in and so I really so he was almost perfect and then and and that was just you know that was four years ago four and a half years ago when I started working on it so I'll ask you Paul and in this being your first biography uh, of course Vec wrote about his own life 
with with writer Ed Lynn, and these memoirs are regarded as among the best books in the baseball library. So was it daunting for you to write the biography of a person who'd already famously told his own story? Not at all. It was it was just the opposite. I was so glad to have it out there because a I'd read it. I didn't read it again. So I read it again when I was I'd read it first time. I think I was about twenty five years old, and I didn't read it on purpose. I mean, I, I would go in there looking for specific incidents and such, but but, but just but not. You know, I, I wanted to tell the story as an investigative journalist would look at it. So I went after things like his FBI files. I went after his service record. I went after. I went after interviews with people who loved him. I went after interviews with people who didn't like him. And so I basically, I, I did about over almost 200 interviews. And I got a lot of these guys at the last minute. Um, a lot of people, uh, you know, who were very old. I found, I found Beck Sargent in the, in the Marine Corps in, in Bougainville. I found him in a nursing home. Mm-hmm. And he talked to me about how Bill Veck, you know, what the war was like with Bill Veck in there. And so, uh, so and and I, I think I tried to treat him like a. I think his own autobiography is a classic. It'll be fifty years old this July, and I hope they have parades in honor of that book because that book not only changed it changed the whole all of sports writing. Before then, everything was was just you know how great a man Leo DeRocher was or something, and all of a sudden Beck is he's self-effacing and he you know he's all over the place and he's very 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 funny, and but I but I. But an autobiography is a t- totally different breed than a biography. A biography is somebody else uh, coming in and, and recreating the, the, the narrative. And the, and the difficulty it is, you could take ten Pulitzer Prize-winning historians and ask well, each ten, each of the ten, to write a biography of Benjamin Franklin, and you would get ten vastly different biographies of Franklin because they would all see different things as important in different episodes. I mean, in my one of the most famous thing about Beck probably is putting Eddie Goodell uh, at, to bat in a, in a game in 1952, and um, who was a, who was a midget, and, and he did it because uh, the strike zone would be so minuscule. And somebody in a review the other day pointed out that Dixon only spent four pages of 400 on, on Goodell, and so we're as in Beck's book, the Goodell thing is the, is, the, is sort of the centerpiece. And I also put him in places. Of course, I finished his life. He still had a lot of life to live after Vec is in wreck. But I also put him. I put him with people. I put him with Howard Hughes. Mm-hmm. I, I'm maybe the only baseball book out this year or any year that has Salvador Dali in the mm-hmm. index. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, know? I mean, you know, so so it's a it's a totally different breed of cat, and it's it's great that that's there because everybody they're expecting. As one person's already said, Dixon Dixon's Vec isn't as funny as I, I expected him to be. Well, the guy had 19 amputations. Yeah, yeah. And so part of his funniness was the, he, he projected an image of him. He was a man himself in Beckers and Wreck, as a man that saw no, you know, no uh, profit in suffering. You know, suffering did not, you know, doesn't mean anything. And, he, and so I was able to do, you know, go behind that. I mean, unbelievable. At one point, he's facing a double amputation, and the, the infection that's causing his leg to be hacked off in pieces is getting into his ear, and... and He's in unbelievable pain, and, and but he bluffs his way through it. He he prevails. He becomes the king of optimism. He has bad teams. He's telling everybody they're going to win, and you know, and and so 
that you, that I took somebody else to tell. And I had talked to people who were actually, you know, met him in a hotel room while he was soaking the, the, the stump of his leg, which he did every morning for about four hours. And I talked to his kids about it, the pain the man was in and, he, and the mask he put on to, for other people to mask that pain. So that's what you're able to do in a biography. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So picking up on that review that you just mentioned, um, we, we com- those who know baseball and those who know Vec, he's commonly associated with Stunts Lake sending Eddie Goodell up to bat. He's, the, the word that is typically associated with Vec is showman. Right. And and he he did have the instincts of a showman. He did have the instincts of someone who who wanted to please the audience. But that leads us uh, to not take him as seriously as as you think we should. Good point. Good point. He did change baseball, and you talked to you know I talked to a lot of people in baseball, Stan Caston and Brooks Robinson, and you go up with Ralph Kiner and every, all sorts of people, and they all said the same thing. They said the baseball was never the same after Bill Vec because it took it from being a simple business of winning and losing to a place where you took the family and had a good time and there were and there were moments of levity and and and, and foolishness and I mean Vec would do things I mean in the early days in Milwaukee when he owned the Milwaukee the minor league Milwaukee Brewers before he went to into combat in World War Two I mean he would do things like give give out a hundred pound block of ice. With a, I mean, I mean, a, a, a block of ice with a hundred silver dollars in it, and somebody would win this, and of course they'd be sitting there. They won this thing, and they had to wait for the thing to melt before they got a hundred dollars. I mean, it was all this kind of you know, you could give away four chickens or something. I mean, and it was it was, and, and, and when it gets to Cleveland, there, you can't in in, um, in forty six, you can't get you can't get nylon stockings anywhere, and Vec has a nylon stocking night. It's the first, it's his first big giveaway. Well, women, you, you never, they're attracted to the ballpark. The first thing he does, every place he goes, the first thing he does is rip out, rips out the old women's room, takes out the fluorescent lighting, which, which this sounds stereotypical, but most women don't like fluorescent lighting when they're out in public because it's harsh. He rips out the fluorescent lights and he puts in hugely expanded powder rooms. And, you know, it's, I mean, that's the way he fixed it. He fixed it with, um, he made it, made it fun to go to the ballpark. And he also did things that drove the other owners nuts. And this, you know, he, he would do things like he'd show up at the gate and welcome people. And, and, and especially if a team lost, he'd thank him for coming on the way out. And he'd sit in the bleachers. And so the, the showman thing is absolutely accurate. He did things that nobody had ever done before. The exploding scoreboard, which is the, Precursor to the jumbotron, which I, I probably Vec would hate because it's too <laughs> intrusive. I mean, I, I, Vec's idea of a great promotion is not, you know, very loud, um, you know, um, rock and roll between innings so you can't talk, or shooting T-shirts into the audience with a slingshot. I mean, Vec's, Vec's idea was to do, you know, have dancing girls out there and belly dancers and clowns and the whole deal, but. Um, but sure, that's part of his legacy. And, and um, but he brought he brought the fans back. I mean, he, when goes to Cleveland, he sets attendance records that aren't broken for fifteen or twenty years. And and the the other part of all this is every everybody sort of they say, well, you know, he all he cared about was winning. 
uh, I mean, was was getting the people in the stands. He didn't care about winning and stuff like that. Well, he, that was just the opposite of the truth. I mean, he had this amazing idea for talent. And, um, you know, he brings in, a, when he's at the White Sox, he brings in this young attorney. Anybody says to manage the White Sox, and he said, you're crazy. Nobody knows. Who is this guy? Where did you find him? His name was Tony La Russa. And so he had this, he had this ability to, 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 to see talent and to see things that were there that other people didn't see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have an interesting line in your prologue that, that for Vec, you say, the fans' happiness was his sacrament. Yeah, it is true. I mean, the fans' happiness is his sacrament. He, that's, he, he would, when he first gets to Cleveland, he sits down and starts studying the hot dogs, starts studying the rolls. He works on a mustard. He himself mm-hmm. works on a mustard that will appeal to all the different ethnic groups that are in Cleveland. You know, I mean, it's just that. But that was the, that was the, that was his sacrament. He puts, you know, in the bleachers in in, um, in Kibiski uh, Park, he puts in a, a shower. You know, uh, so on those those guys out in the bleachers there with no shirts on, they can take a shower. So while he sees, as you say, he saw the fans' happiness as his sacrament. It's, it seemed to me from my reading, that Vec didn't see baseball as sacred, uh, which, which seemed to get him in trouble over his career. Is that, would that be accurate to yes, say? Yes, absolutely. It's a game. You know, it's a game. And, and I think that's you know, one of the uh, comments that one of, one of his sons made was he said, life's tough. Baseball's a game. Play ball. You know, it's not a sacrament. A sacrament is your, your children's happiness and your the love you have of your mate it's not a ball game i mean it's 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 a it's a game you know and and it and it's and it's a colorful game and it's a game populated by raucous fascinating individuals like bill veck i mean bill veck's part of the tapestry that makes baseball special uh and the fact you know it's the same the same it's almost an operatic cast of characters with ruth and stengel and you know, I don't have to give you these guys' first names. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about you know Gehrig and 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 Dizzy D. You know, I have to give you his first name. But but you know, it's it's. But even coming down to somebody like Dan Cuisenberry, you know, these guys who are very they have great quotes. They're fascinating, and I think Beck embodied that whole business where their baseball was was uh, you know it, it wasn't a sacrament. It was a it was a very colorful game. Well, let's turn to some specifics of the book, and and you begin, Paul, not with uh, not with Vec, but with his father, who was also William Vec, and uh, was also involved in baseball. And it seemed to me that uh, quite a few of the ideas that that Bill Vec Jr. incorporated in in his management of teams, his dad was already moving in those directions. That's true. His his father was a newspaper man, and he was uh, brought in at a very Right in the at the end of the uh, 1919 season to uh, be the uh, be the president of the Cubs, the Wrigley family just bought the Cubs, and they brought in a newspaper man. And one of the things I play with in the book is he may have been onto the fact that it was the 1918 World Series had been had been fixed, as well as the ninth, the famous uh, Black Sox of 1919. And uh, the book has some pretty interesting details on that. A lot of this information on the fixing of the 1918 World Series, the one between the Red Sox and the Cubs, uh, was not revealed until, until a few years ago when the, all the grand jury documents 
uh, came to light. But he also, his father was virulently anti-gambling, and he actually turned in a gambler in that who was trying to fix one of his games, and that actually precipitated the the Black Sox uh, investigation. I mean, all of that was put in motion by Vex's father. But when he once his father got into baseball, his father did things that had never been done before. And he does he promotes Ladies' Day. He has the first uh, executive baseball exec, female baseball executive. He's he's totally attuned to the fact that if he's going to provide, make the Cubs, make Wrigley Field a great, uh, a place packed every night, and not every night, every day, rather, uh, that he's got to get, he's got to get everybody in there. It can't be a place where uh, low life hang out. It's got to be a place, which was sometimes the case. It's got to be a place where you want to bring the family, and if you start bringing the women in, then they bring the kids with them, and the, and the whole game changes. And his father understood this as well as anybody. And he, although his father also rather uh, was very early in showing Vec that race and, and money didn't count, because the story that Vec told all his life, and which is uh, told me to even today in the family, one day is young Vec, Bill Jr., you know, the, the son, is, is, is working in the, over the summer. He's working at, at um, Wrigley Field, and his father says, has them to count some money. And he gave him a big stack of bills. And he said, see that money? His father says, see that money? He said, it's, it's all green. It's the only color that matters around here. And he, you know, implying that he was, he was going after the, the, the African-American spectators as well. So in 1933, Vec Sr. passes away. And, uh, and Bill Vec was, was 19 years old at the time. And, and right away, he begins to work with the Cubs. So what was his, his first role in a uh, major league front office? Well, he was, he worked his way up from sort of being a, uh, you know, an assistant treasurer cashier. He did some box office work. He actually worked for the George Hallis of the Bears as well while that period. But he gradually worked himself up to a position where he was managing things for the Wrigley family. And he, uh, he was the one who basically transformed or was in charge of transforming Wrigley, uh, Wrigley Field into what it is today. He, he was the one in charge of planting the ivy. In front of, in, in charge of re- rebuilding the bleak, the famous bleachers there, uh, putting in the concession stands, of really giving its mo- its modern dimensions, and um, he he would, a lot of people attribute that to his father, but it was actually his father was dead at the point all of that was done, and so he really he really brought the whole thing along. I mean, I think he really worked hard, the Wrigleys, uh, to to get the place uh, uh, crew of attendance. I mean, right from that start. One of his jobs was to get more people in the ballpark, and he, and he worked at it. But, but with very few exceptions, uh, the, 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 the field you see today is the, is the product of, of Dovec. I mean, the physical, which when you walk through that, that gate and you, and you just look out in front of you, which I've done many times, and you just look out at that, at that spectacular outfield, uh, you, that's that's Vec. Mm-hmm. So you'd mentioned already that uh, he was working with or, or he was part owner of the minor league Milwaukee Brewers. So he was with the Cubs throughout the 30s. Yep. In 1941, he uh, moves to the Brewers. And, and right from the start, he brings this, this talent for promotions in, in running his first team. So what did, he, what did he set out to do in Milwaukee? He set out to do a failing, take a failing ball club and basically pump up attendance, make it a winning team, create a, create a, a presence there, 
and make and put the team and himself on the national stage. And before he goes into the service, he has done remarkable things, things that make na- national attention. He goes there as the war is, uh, war is starting, World War II is starting, and the one, right off the bat, one of the things he does after the war has started, the, the, more industries are kicking in, and Beck has a, decides he's going to do a uh, start doing ball games at eight, some ball games at eight o'clock in the morning or nine o'clock, depending on when it was, you know, what part of the summer, to get the um, to get the third shift working on war work overnight. They could come out out of work and go to the ball game. And he, you know, he had all his stunts with weedy, you know, freed breakfast cereal, and you know, he would have uh, Charlie Grimm's sleeping on the field in a big iron bed, and and he would then, you know, and and the, and the players, the teams would play at that early time in the morning. Well, a lot of the other teams in the league were angry about this; they thought it was an imposition. But all of a sudden, people like Connie Mack, who then was the head of the Philadelphia Athletics, Connie, and sort of the grand old man of baseball at that time. Mac thinks it's a brilliant idea, and and all of a sudden, Beck is doing these these crazy promotions. He's setting attendance records. Um, he's he, at one point he thinks he's been cheated out of an attendance record, so he ma- he manufactures his own and gives it to himself. <laughs> and that, on the cover of the book, that there's a big trophy behind book Beck on the cover. Oh, of the is book. that what that is? I wondered what. Yeah, that. <laughs> and that's why that's that's when he's in Milwaukee, but but that, and then he starts to win. Tenants and he and he brings in you know he buys players and you know he gives Charlie Grimm for his birthday a pitcher and so he and before he goes in the Marine Corps he has basically been featured in uh, a major feature in Look a major feature in Saturday Evening Post and a major feature in Esquire now for younger people it, they probably don't realize the, the extraordinary power on those days of magazines like life and colliers and look and and but but here but this is what everybody looked at this was cnn and everything else rolled into one and here here is Vec now all of a sudden he is the the, the poster boy for the what made baseball still attractive during the war and then all of a sudden one day he gets uh he gets thinking about it and he realizes that a lot of all you know, of people who he didn't want to see drafted got drafted and he he signs up for the Marines. I mean, nobody's prepared for this. He signs up for the Marines. The Marines are, go crazy because they've got this national figure on their hands. Uh, and they tell Vec, oh, boy, we can't wait to get you out on the stump and recruiting. And, yeah, I'm not, he said, I'm not going to recruit. I, this is my decision. I, I didn't join the Marines. I want to go into combat. He demands to go into combat. Long story short, he gets into combat, and, and there's an accident with a, um, an anti-aircraft gun. A huge howitzer kind of gun with would it recoiled and smashes into him, and that injury, which was to, occurred in a combat zone in a horrible part of the South Pacific, and where there's jungle rot and disease and everything else, and, and he, he gets infected, and that leads him to this life of pain and agony and amputation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You were talking earlier about the craft of writing, of, of writing someone's life, and uh, and I was struck in that passage when you were talking about him enlisting, how it. It reads like a, a spur of the moment decision. It it comes out of nowhere in in your book. Yeah, it's exactly what happened. 
And there, there another thing is in Vekas and Rick, I think he takes less than a, I mean, it's, it's sort of part of another paragraph about going in the, in the mm-hmm. art Marine. And, and yet he was, you also say he was, he was a model Marine. Yeah. I mean, in every respect, he was crazy, but he was a model Marine. I mean, he was a sharpshooter and he had, he hated guns. His, his a, a older brother early in his life had been killed in a gun accident with a friend who was seven. He had never know, known the older brother, but all of his life he had this fear of guns. And he, but yes, he goes to the Marine Corps and he, he gets a, immediately gets a sharpshooter uh, ranking. He beats all these younger guys in, in you know, in all the, 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 the torture courses that the Marines run. And he and, and when he's out in the South Pacific, he's unbelievable. And the the sergeant I find says that he did things like he would have um, all of a sudden one day, and they're in a combat zone. They're hundreds of yards from the Japanese lines. I mean, Beck would also get up there and scream obscenities at the Japanese. But but he would but apparently well, he's not obscenities. He never used to. He he never swore in his life. It, it were they were sort of not obscenities as much as uh, challenges. And and saying that they were cowards and things like that, but um, but the thing the thing that was amazing about him was the sergeant says there's now you know this old old man and he says you know so one day all of a sudden this supply train comes in and it's full of baseball equipment he said no to this day I have no idea how he got that stuff blown into a combat zone <laughs> he was also he was also trading players in a combat zone he was when he was down there he was. Which people said, "Oh, that's another, that, that's Vec making something up," but yeah, I actually traced it back to the original article in Stars and Stripes, which was the service newspaper. And apparently, he was using war correspondence to send back to, um, messages, uh, inviting people to trade players or firming up trades that he was making. Well, one important story that we have to talk about there between uh, his time with the, the Brewers and then uh, when he was overseas. Is uh, in 1942 he was he was looking to buy a team in in the major leagues, and uh, the team he had his sights on uh, were the Philadelphia Phillies. And uh, it wasn't simply he wanted to buy the team; he had a a big history making scheme uh, in mind for the team. So could you talk about what what he wanted to do with with the Phillies? What 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 Beck wanted to do, and he was he had already partnered up with Abe Saperstein, who Abe Saperstein was the man who had created and developed. The Harlem Globetrotters. In fact, uh, they had Saperstein saved Vec the first winter he was in in Milwaukee because he gave him the, the franchise for the all black Harlem Globetrotters, which then is now was 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 an all black team, all all African American team. And so what what his idea is is all of these great players are are Negro League players are out there. Most of them are too old for the draft. Satchel Page being one of the lead ones, but all the rest of them, Cool Papa Bell and Oscar Charleston, and the rest of them, and he wants to basically field an all-black team. He wants to take the Phillies and put them into a league, uh, make them an all-black team. Now, this is something that's already been proposed to his father before his father died. Uh, the, the idea was out there. There's some of the newspapers that pretty This was the idea, not of racial integration, but of racial equality in the sense that. Earliest proposal was to put a black team in the American League and a black team in the National League, and this would bring up attendance, everything else. And a lot of the players, uh, Babe Ruth included, thought it was a wonderful idea. And so Vec was going to pull this off in, in the 40s, and it, they just they just 
the word came down as he went to execute the sale that the league was taking over, and this was not going to happen. He had he had he had confided in, in, in Landis, who was very close to him. He'd grown up with his father, who was then commissioner of baseball. But at the, but according to uh, Vec and all the other sources I could find, Landis just said, um, "No, we're not going to be. You're not going to do this." Mm-hmm. And um, there's some, I mean, and there are people who questioned it because they said there's no, there was actually a famous article that questioned it, which said there was no paperwork and there was no reporting on it in the, in the, in the Negro press. But, uh, but I think I pretty much uh, rebutted that in the sense that they were trying to prove a negative, and I had a lot more evidence that it, was, that it actually happened. And the other thing was it, it went on the assumption that Vec was a liar, and, and Vec had these very strong principles which were that he never swore and he never lied. He, he told the stories, but he would, never, he would never falsify anything for the sake of, you know, for, the, for his own aggrandizement. Sometimes he would lie to make, not lie, but he would exaggerate to make himself look more humble than he was. But it's, it's you know, and, and I think almost every other person like myself has really looked into this issue. Jules Tigel, the late Jules Tigel, he went on. He, he believes that Vec really did make a sincere effort to get the Phillies, and was blocked for it. Mm-hmm. And he talked about it for years and years to come, and nobody ever challenged the story. Man, while he was alive. So he comes back from the war uh, in 1945. He's in and out of hospitals, and and he's still looking for opportunities to get into Major League Baseball. His chance finally comes in 1946, midway through that season. Uh, he and a group of partners, which includes the comedian Bob Hope, they buy the Cleveland Indians. And, uh, of course, an important chapter of Vex time as owner of the Indians, which, which you've already alluded to uh, earlier, was the signing of Larry Doby, the first black player in the American League. And this happens in, in 1947. So can you tell what led Vex to bring Doby on the team? I, I think at that point, all the kids... All that Vec really cared about was winning. I mean, I think he really cared about winning, but he also felt that he wanted that the great there was this great untapped reserve of talent in the in the Negro Leagues, and so he, in, in fact, the winter before uh, he signs Doby, uh, he actually tries to sign Roy Dandridge, who was then playing in the in the, um, in the uh, uh, Mexican leagues. Who was another black player, and that does that just doesn't work out. I mean, Dandridge just wants a guarantee, and Vet can't give it to him, and you know, and, and but but he's got it in his mind. And, and as the as the as the forty seven season opens, the first thing Beck does, he brings in the first black front office guy. He brings in a a PR guy. He need, he said, I need a PR guy. If I'm going to put a a Negro on my team, I need a PR guy who's Negro who can facilitate all this. And help me do it. And he picked a man who was actually was Lena Horne's husband, who was very well known in Cleveland. And um, so that he set that up in advance. He was looking at Dobie, he was looking at other players, and all of a sudden, Branch Rickey signs Robinson. He knows that's in the works. And eleven weeks later, he signs Dobie. Uh, Vec does, and he gets, you know, he he does it. Almost spur of the moment. I mean, he, all of a sudden, he's he's got there's a con. He's been scouting him all season. He knows he knows Doby's a very he's like Robinson. He has a, a stri- the proper temperament. He knows he's going to be given a, an amazing amount of, of race hatred on the field and and even from other players. And he needs a man who he knows can can hold himself uh, his temper in check and such. 
and he and he finds the ideal guy in Doby, and and um, he signs Doby. Doby comes in, and Doby's not a big success his first year. He's and then it's only in his second year that he really in '48, the championship season, that he really blossoms. And of course, in the meantime, he brings in in the in the '48 season, he brings in Satchel Paige, which creates a huge furor. And the sporting news attacks him for doing this because, in a funny way. Doby's less controversial to the baseball establishment than Pages because Pages, the, the baseball establishment is saying for decades these guys aren't as good as our players. They're, they're they're inferior. These black players are inferior to the white players. Well, when they bring in Page, now they're going to now they're, they're going to prove that they may prove them wrong. That he may even as an old man he may be a great great pitcher. And of course, he he comes in and helps them win the win the win the pennant in the World Series, and. Um, and the, of course, and in in the, what happens the next year, there are eleven blacks in spring training. Oh, seven, seven rookies, uh, seven new black players who are black that come to spring training, as well as the ones already in the system. But there's seven, and these include Minnie Minosa, Luke Easter, and other players, some of whom never went on to do anything. But Vec was setting up, a, was basically setting up to re- deep, deeply integrate the American League. And one of the reasons he felt later, one of the reasons he felt that the National League was was superior to the American League, was the American League, mainly the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Tigers, had been the Senators had been so determined not to integrate, and so uh, that he felt that was one of the things that really um, uh, made a difference between the two leagues. And of course, Vex's greatest thrill was taking Satchel Paige to Yankee Stadium. And watching him pack the place, you know, they never, they, you know, unbelievable attendance when Page would show up. And not only did Vec, uh, something that you write about, not only by 1949 did he bring uh, a number of black players onto the Indians team, uh, he also continued to um, integrate the front office, the administration, the grounds crew of the Indians. Yeah, I and mean, that was part of his mantra. And you know, the interesting thing about Vec was Vec. Vec had this he had this deep respect for everybody, and and he there wasn't a prejudice bone. I mean, I think he didn't like really rich, arrogant people. I think that was his major uh, prejudice. But you know, his wife said, you know, Bill Vec was born on the right side of the tracks, and he marched over to the wrong side of the tracks and fell at home on either side of the track. So Vec was the groundskeepers could walk into his office. And say I got I'm hurting today. Can you loan me five bucks? I mean, give him. I mean, he would talk to anybody. I want to ask a question about Larry Doby because he's someone who uh, whom you talk about throughout the book. And and uh, picking up on this this theme that that Vec befriended everybody, he became good friends with with Larry Doby. And I want to ask. So just yesterday, um, the the day before we were recording this interview was Jackie Robinson Day in in Major League Baseball. And uh, so players on various teams all wore number 42 uh, to honor Robinson. And not to take anything away from Robinson and and what he did, uh, I had the the feeling, watching that, it's unfortunate that Larry Doby doesn't get that type of attention. I'm, you know, thank you for saying that, because I, I hope the book helps that uh, a little bit, because um, Dobie had a much tougher time with it. You know, Dobie grew up in a, in, Dobie had never known racial hatred. He had grown up in a, in a suburb of New York and New Jersey. He was, he was a class, everything, class, 
uh, you know, three sports. He was one of his class officers. In fact, the, the one great irony, he played football. One of the guys he played football against was Buzz Aldrin, who was the second man on the moon. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a parallel there. Uh, but he, he grew up in a, in a very suburban, very liberal, uh, in terms of racial issues and such, uh, community. And uh, fully integrated high school. And then he goes, he's drafted, he goes to Long Island University, plays on a predominantly white basketball team, and then goes in the Navy where there is segregation, but it is an orderly form of, you know, the fact that he goes to a different training camp and such. It is true segregation, but he never really experiences the race hatred. I mean, he makes a lot of friends of white ball players in the military. Um, but he, but it's, but it's only after he gets into baseball that he starts hearing the N-word and, People throw things at him. He's on a, a spring training trip, and in spring training, and he goes through. They go through Houston, and they're throwing. People are throwing rocks at him, and and uh, booing him, and and he he takes a lot of this stuff hard. And he's the, the the biggest problem is that he gets really depressed about it. I mean, it really gets to him because he's it's it's alien to him. It's really um, it's the exact it's sort of the opposite of a lot of the other players who've grown up in in the ghetto and and grown up with. With 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 real you know people looking bad at them, you know looking at them as inferiors and he didn't have he didn't have you know Robinson had been the the, the big difference was Robinson had been tested he had been put in the Montreal first he'd been brought up through the minors and he had been, he run through a lot of this stuff Dobie was just thrown out there you know he goes to Chicago they sign him in the, at at, at um, before before a White Sox game, and he and he's in the game that day, and so and and there are people that are who are wonderful. Them, Joe Gordon is he is sort of plays the same role that Pee Wee Reese plays for Jackie Robinson, but it is sad because he and he and he turns into a great player. But he's, you know, he's um and, and then when he finally gets to be a manager, uh, again he's beaten. He's number two. He's the second black manager, and he's beaten by. Frank Robinson. So he's beaten by two guys named Robinson. So Vex sells his uh, sells his stake in the Indians in 1951. He gets, or excuse me, Vex sells his stake in the Indians in 1949. He gets back into ownership in 1951 with St. Louis Browns, and it's in St. Louis that he has this promotional idea that that he's most often associated with, and that's uh, sending three foot seven inch Eddie Goodell up to bat. So what, why did he do this? Well, I think he, he he had come to an ailing, ailing, ailing ballpark, park, a club and a lousy ballpark. I mean, somebody, Red Smith said, Bill Vec has just bought the Browns. Nobody knew they were, nobody knew, knew they were owned. It was just, <laughs> it was, they were so bad and their record was so bad. And that came in and he realized he had to do something. And he had to get the people back in the stands and, he started immediately with free beer nights, and he did this, and he did that. He he planned a, a, a thing where the uh, there would be no manager one night, and he, you know, he got people to be it was be your own manager, and people would hold up cards, and they they they'd put up a card to say steal, and everybody would say yes, and then the guy would try to steal, and they end up so he would do these wacky wacky things, and then of course this brainstorm is the idea is that he doesn't have anybody on the team that can get on base. So he figures he'll put this midget in the, in the uh, lineup who will crouch, will crouch down, and of course will have no strikes on at all when he's crouched, and they will give an automatic walk, and they'll have a man on first, and then and then he will have made his point, and of course he knows it's going to be controversial, but he also knows 
he's back in the game and he really wants to come. He really wants to build this team into something big. And he figures he's going to do it initially with, with uh, these uh, gimmicks. These, these, uh... And, of course, it, it, it changes baseball. The Gadell thing changes baseball. He's censored for it. There's no commissioner at the time. That's the other reason. There was a vacuum in commissioners, so he knew he could probably get away with it. But he's censored, and, and there's a lot, but a lot of people think it's funny. And um, the other thing that really, that really comes out of it is baseball at this point in, in 52 is battling with television as a form of entertainment. And all of a sudden, in this one moment, because this one picture is run, every, almost every newspaper in the, in the English-speaking world runs a picture. And, um, and, it's, and, it, and it reverberates for days. I mean, Goodell goes on the, all the big television shows, the Milton Berle show. He's on this. He gets a lot of money as a speaker. Uh, you know, it's, and he's a, and he, he, and he loves it. He, he really plays it up. I mean, he's a ham and he's, you know, he's not, he doesn't see himself as a victim. He sees himself as a, as a, uh, as a show, as a show business personality. And he gets up and he says, I could have been Babe Root, you know, <laughs> you know, um, but it, but it, what it does at the beginning of the television age, it makes television a baseball visual again. Hey, wait a second! Something's going on out there. I better keep my eye on the on the game. So it's 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 it does change things. It's it's rather remarkable in that sense. So he owns the Browns. Vec owns the Browns from from fifty one to fifty four. Correct. Right. When they move to Baltimore and become your team, and yeah. uh, and then he owns the White Sox. He has a short tenure as owner of the White Sox, nineteen fifty eight to nineteen sixty one. I want to jump ahead to the the sixties and into the seventies when. Uh, as you said, Vec, uh, he was his, his health had really turned down. He had moved to the the eastern shore of Maryland, believing, as you said, he was he was going there to die. Uh, he was out of baseball as an owner, but in no way did he stay away from the game. So, can you talk about his involvement with baseball uh, during this period of the '60s and '70s, what we could call his retirement? He, he's desperately trying to get back into the game, and, he, and, and what, what he's left behind him, he tries to buy the Baltimore Orioles, he tries to buy, he tries to keep the Orioles and bring him to Baltimore, he tries to keep getting back, he wants either the Washington Senators or the, the Baltimore Orioles, and he's already, he's, he tells in many interviews, because he's gone down to the Eastern Shore to die, but all the reporters keep coming down there again and again, because they think they're going to get the last interview with Vec. And he's always telling me, I've got to get one of these teams. So he makes several attempts to buy teams over this period, but he just can't. It just doesn't, it doesn't happen. He, just, he desperately wants one. Of course, what's happened is he has really alienated the other agents and uh, other owners. And many of them just are steadfast in their, in their desire never to let him back into baseball. A lot of it has to do with things like demanding television rights, demanding this. And, of course, the other thing that he does during this period is he testifies for Kirk Flood. Vec has been from from the time he's 18 years old, and he pens a letter to, to the, the commissioner, Landis. Since that time, he has been opposed to the to the the, the free agency uh, clause or the uh, reserve clause that holds people in baseball. He, he's pro free agents, and he and he's uh, against the reserve clause, which bound the players to the teams. And so when Kirk Flood sues. Uh, to get out of the reserve clause, Beck goes in and testifies in his favor. And Beck's the only guy, I'll say, Beck and Hank Greenberg are the only one who testify against the reserve clause. And of course, this, this, this is blasphemy. This is the worst thing you can do. 
And he's also, you know, there is resistance. I mean, he's really, he's really picked a fight with the Yankees, and he criticizes them on every level. Uh, he, he finds them, um, he's totally disdainful of them. He even thinks that the Maris Mantle, the 1961 season, that the Yankees actually worked against Maris as the, as the, even though that was the championship, the record-breaking season. So he's he's in, always involved in this, this in the picking of the Yankees, always involved in trying to get another team, and always involved with people, a lot of baseball people. Um, so that, and the, of course, at the, at the end of this point period, or part of the period in the Eastern Shore, he ends up owning a racetrack outside of Boston. And that becomes a general manager and part owner. And that becomes another world in which Beck can play. And, of course, when Beck gets involved in a town, I mean, he immediately gets to, gets up to Boston, and there's a big plan to get rid of Fenway Park and create a big omnibus stadium. And Beck is immediately crusading for the preservation of Fenway Park. And then he gets involved there. They're going to throw the, the um, Patriots out of Boston. And he gets involved in a scheme to try to prevent the, the Patriots from having to leave Boston because they don't have a stadium. He offers to put up some money through uh, uh, parimutuel money from the racetrack. And it's enough to keep this movement where the, to throw the, the, Reds, the uh, um, Patriots out of Boston. And he gets involved in everything when, when they're trying to get the uh, Washington Redskins um, and won't integrate. George Preston Marshall won't integrate the Washington Redskins. The Secretary of the Interior, which owned the park where they were playing the the uh, stadium, he uh, his name is uh, is U- it's Udall, and um, Beck comes to Udall and says, uh, "Look, uh, maybe I should bring in an American Football League team, and we'll throw these guys out of the stadium." And it doesn't happen, and, but it's just one more thing where he gets involved in something that has nothing to do with baseball. In 1975, he does come back into baseball. He uh, becomes the owner of the White Sox. Again, he builds a contending team, at least for one season. Uh, but this time in, in Chicago, this short time in Chicago, is is known really notoriously for another one of Vex promotions, a promotion that, that went terribly wrong. So can you talk about, about that? Yeah, he, I mean, he came back. But the second time he came back, he basically, uh, it was it was his last to run. He had a great, I mean, here he was. He campaigned against a free, uh, the reserve clause, and here he was paying the price of it because he just couldn't, there just wasn't the money there to pay the players. He got he had a nice run with it, with this that first year, but he became more and more desperate, and he brought in his, his um, son, Mike, to help him do some promotions, and, they they were, they came up with this idea, which was just it was just a, a bad idea. They were going to have uh, all these guys. There was a big anti disco music was big then, and there was the idea they had a disc jockey in Chicago, who had a whole big campaign against disco. And so what they did, they were going to have a special double header with the with the Detroit Tigers, and they were going to they were planning to have at, at the in, during the intermission or between the two games. Uh, they're going to have everybody come down and burn these disco records. And what happened was they got a really wild and crazy crowd. They jammed the expressways. People rushed the gates. They weren't paying to get in. There was an, an unbelievable amount of marijuana consumed. There was a cloud of marijuana smoke over the stadium. Uh, people were throwing these these uh, LP records like they were Frisbees, but they were, you know, they could, if they came from the upper deck, they could probably cut your hand off. But because uh, they're sharp, and, and um, 
And it just got, they, they started burning the stuff and they wrecked the field and they couldn't bring them under control. And here's poor Bill Zach out of the hospital up there with a, a handheld mic trying to get uh, bring the crowd under control and pleading with them to stop, pleading, saying they're going to go home. But they don't stop, and they keep setting fires, and they keep uh, uh, things just, just get worse and worse. And, I, you know, the announcer that night was Ernie Harwell, and he said it was one of the worst nights of his life. And he was the announcer in the Detroit booth. And it was especially not... A lot of people really were upset by it. I mean, every once in a while, somebody would. There were people today that thought it was funny, but it was, it was as close as you could come to anarchy. And and uh, and, and thank goodness it, it didn't get worse. And you know that was sort of the that was to many people the bookends of Beckpeck's life. That was the bookend, but the, the you know the other end of the thing. But he he went on. He he held the team for another a while and sold it and and uh, lived a jolly life in in Chicago and had many friends and. You know, would, would still show up at the bleachers. He would. He, he was a great fan of the going to the bleachers at uh, at Wrigley Field in, in the in the later days of his life. He's there many many days. And once the once the the um, I think when the when the White Sox were bought uh, bought bought from him, there were some comments made that kept him away from from the um, from Comiskey. But he finally went back right towards the end of his life, and then. Um, but at the age of 73, he died. He, uh, all of these these things caught up with him. He'd been in the hospital a lot. Uh, he had cancer. He had a, he had uh, uh, this continued infection from the leg. He was he was living on spare parts. You know, mm-hmm. He was gone. Um, one of the, one of the great details, though, from uh, his his last days is, oh, you say right before he death, right before his death, he called up Hank Greenberg with a scheme for for buying a team. Oh yeah, no. He, right to the end, he saw himself coming back somewhere, he, and and he would he would do, he, and he also got very involved in um, in political causes at the end. I mean, there was a point at which there wasn't an anti-gun or anti-war demonstration that he wasn't a part of, and, and he's he has a, he's fascinating in every respect, even politically. And you know, here's a guy, and the reason he said he was in these anti-gun things was he said his seven-year-old brother was killed. By another seven-year-old mm-hmm. with a gun, and so, and he'd been in the war. He'd been, but he saw the devastation of war, and that was one of the reasons he was so, so against the war in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. But he also, at the end of his, you know, even when he was in, in Eastern Shore, there was an amazing character about him. Like when John F. Kennedy he idolized John F. Kennedy. When Kennedy died, he flew over with Mike and and uh, Fred Crable, who was his nephew, was in Washington, and they go to the back of the line to visit to see Kennedy's. Uh, grave, uh, Kennedy's uh, body lying in state in, at the Capitol, and the Marines come up and they say, "Mr. Vec, you're a Marine. You're wounded. Uh, we, ins- you're, you're, you're important to us. You don't have to stay out here with these two little kids in the back of the line uh, in the cold and in this dreary night, waiting to see. This. We want to take you to the front line." People were urging him. People in line saying, "That go, go to the front." You. You can't, he's standing on there in this, on this peg leg. With me, and he refuses to move. He said, I'm a citizen. I don't, I don't deserve further. I, I, this is who I am. I, I wait in line to pay my respects. It was that kind of thing that made him different than the, almost anybody I could have written about. <laughs> I mean, would you, if you were sitting there with a wooden leg, wouldn't you go into the front line? <laughs> I, th- you know. I, I think I would have, yes. <laughs> so, so talking about these, these conflicts that he had with, with baseball owners over the years, when I when I started reading the book, I thought this is going to be a story that highlights the struggle between tradition 
and change in baseball, which is a familiar story in the history of baseball. Sure. But in but in looking at Vec and the struggle he had with his opponents, the the owners of other clubs, it seems like there there was not so much a concern for baseball tradition among those owners. It seemed more to be a, a matter of Vec was fighting against the narrow self interest of owners. Yeah. I think so, and also the fact that he was trying to do new things. And one of the, I mean, for one of the things he does, at first the other owners were appalled. He basically, when he's in Chicago the first time, he he starts look. He had once studied tax law uh, at night school in, in the '30s, and he's looking at tax law. and He says, you know, you can depreciate the value of a of a of an oil well. Well, why can't you depreciate the value of a ball player? Why why doesn't a pitcher's arm become less valuable every year? And he t- starts talking about this, and he and, and the other owners are they say well, you can't do that, you know this is they, they somehow seem threatened by this guy who's going to reinterpret tax law, and lo and behold, uh, they, not only did the ta- not only does the IRS accept it, but the rest of the owners jump jump onto it as well. But I think I think what the other thing they felt about Vec was that he might cost them their antitrust status. Mm-hmm. Because when they when the reason that Orioles come to Baltimore is because Mayor Delisandro of Baltimore when when they they had said no we can't bring the the Browns to Baltimore and the major leagues were trying to stop it he went this wasn't discovered until years later Delisandro went in and said look I know President Eisenhower I know President Truman I know the, and he named all the people he's known in his political life and he said if you deny me this franchise. I will cost it will cost you your the, the monopoly you've got the, the, the antitrust status, and I think that was they were also afraid that he would do something they would that would cause that because one of the times they're investigating the antitrust thing, they tell him that he's playing playing one of the congressmen Emmanuel Sellers says he's playing one of his players too little, and he tells him it's none of his business. What do you what do I play my players? So you know, but Congress shouldn't be looking into baseball. And they were afraid of him for that. Yeah, yeah. No, in reading it, that makes sense that the other owners are really, they're the partners in a monopoly. And yep. and baseball fans, you have to go to those clubs, to those owners to get their product. And uh, if you're running a monopoly, you don't have to really sell your product like, like Vec did. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and it was, I, you know, one of the, uh, Andy McPhail, who was a general manager of the Orioles when I talked to him, Andy McPhail, you know, the son of two other McPhails, Andy McPhail, or his grandson and grandson, Andy McPhail said what really drove the other no- owners nuts, they really bothered them, was what he would go out and sit in the bleachers with the fans. Hmm. That was really, it was like, I don't know what would be another example of it, but it was, you know, it, it, it was, to them it was, Shattering uh, insult to them because they weren't going to do this. And what is what he calls himself an owner and he's sitting out there drinking beer with you know, some old guys. You know <laughs> that. And I, it's funny. I mean, that was a, that was. I mean, for for a writer, he's almost a perfect character. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's striking too that that Vec recognized and struggled against the same fundamental structural problems that that baseball still faces today yes that's what he was struggling with and even today there are there are problems with baseball i mean there it's there was, yeah last year was a record but there was the stadiums were only 65 percent filled 
And I think if Beck wasn't around, I think he'd find a way to make them 85% filled. And it wouldn't be through overamped music, and it wouldn't be through you know ads on the Jumbotron. It would be through things, things that he did. It wouldn't just be through you know, a million bobblehead giveaways. It would be, I think it would, he would find other things to do. Well, Paul, we're almost out of time, so uh, given your your prolific publishing record, surely you've got another uh, another book in the works right now. What are you working on? I'm actually working on a book. I When I said before, I like tour de force. I like to try new things. I, I, I came up with this idea. I'm working on a book called Words from the White House, which is a book about words that were created by presidents of the United States. I can, I can find 113 words created by Thomas Jefferson, including be little hmm. and uh, anglophobia. And there are all these different, and, and, and I mean, I'll give you one example that just, that just really sort of encapsulated the idea. I found that the term founding fathers does not exist in the English language before Warren G. Harding who uses it in a campaign mostly in the negative. He'd say, the Founding Fathers never meant for us to do something. And before that, they were what's called the Framers. And it, 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 Roosevelt inter- invents the word iffy, I-F-F-Y, and it makes headlines. He said some for the Supreme Court decision was iffy. And the papers would say the president created a new world, word today. So uh, I've done a whole book on words, words either created or publicized by presidents. You've been listening to an interview with Paul Dixon about his book, Bill Veck, Baseball's Greatest Maverick, published in 2012 by Walker & Company. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects from Africa and Europe to East Asia and Russia. Please friend New Books and Sports on Facebook and follow us on Twitter where you can give us feedback and find daily links to quality, shorter sports writing from around the world. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.